If you're new to us, we've been uh, kind of working our way through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, it's been uh, been pretty extraordinary and uh, real challenging for me. Um, you know, I, probably like you, I've I've read the book of Acts many times and and have never really done a kind of an in-depth study of it, and so uh, it's it's been really a challenging book to study, and uh, there's some interesting things in there to say the least, but. We have been in a study of the book of Acts, and, uh, you know, uh, the leaders and I made the decision a couple of months ago that that would be a good book to, to study together as we plant and begin a new church. And uh, what, what, I mean, that's a great book, right? Doesn't that make sense? It's kind of a no-brainer. It's like, okay, we want to plant a church. We have a pretty good sense of what it should be like, uh, but we actually have, like, a manual in the scriptures that really illustrate what a church should be like, and so that's kind of where God led us, and we've been in it, and we've been creeping, right? We've been kind of creeping through it. For those of you who've been here, you've been like, are we ever going to get done with chapter one? Are we ever going to get done with chapter two? Are we gonna, you know? But uh, my philosophy is why hurry? You know, Let's just uh, work our way through the scriptures and, and see what God has for us. But anyways, with all that being said, um, three weeks ago, and I, I wasn't here last week, and, and I'd like to thank Colby even in front of you guys for, for doing a tremendous job of um, preaching the gospel last week. And uh, I'm thankful that, that God has, has brought uh, gifted men here and uh, that, that others uh, can utilize the pulpit for his glory and teach you guys. And, and that was really cool, but I heard great things. Thank you, Colby, for that. But I, I was uh, DJing a, a wedding uh, reception thing and uh, in the direct sunlight. So my hair fell off. No, I actually got it cut. Uh, but it was a really amazing ceremony. It's Tyler Miller. Some of you know him. He got married, and, and that was really awesome. But So I was away. Uh, but three weeks ago, we, we did sort of begin to look at, uh, at Peter's great sermon in chapter 2 of Acts. And, uh, and then two weeks ago, the first week we kind of started it, two weeks ago, our second week in it, we looked at... Um, chapter 2, 22 to 24, and, uh, and so that was our last text that we studied in Acts, and uh, in that particular text, we saw that Peter really presented like three foundational truths that affirm the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter's entire sermon, really, if you go back and look through it all and read it and kind of marinate on it, uh, his whole point is to prove that Jesus was, at that point, and is Israel's Messiah. Uh, we know, uh, most of us know from studying the Gospels and seeing what happened with Jesus, that Israel pretty much rejected him as Messiah, the majority of people did. And so his goal in his sermon, being filled with the Holy Spirit and these miraculous things of gifts and the, uh, gifts of tongues and these things had come in that moment on that day of Pentecost, and, and so he kind of seized this moment and began to present these truths uh, that show and reveal that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And so three of the things, uh, we looked at three of those things last time we studied, and the three things that he uh, expounded upon and, 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 and used and taught about were the miracles of Jesus, uh, and then he presented the crucifixion as uh, the predetermined plan of God, which was an amazing little section there. And then he also... Um, talked about the resurrection of Jesus, which is most certainly the most defining 
thing about Jesus that proves his divinity, that proves that he's the Messiah. It's kind of the cherry on top of the Sunday. I mean, if you take all the miracles and all the things that Jesus did and taught, those are all powerful, those are all important, uh, they're massive, but the one uh, absolute reality and truth is the resurrection. That, that proves it beyond anything. And, and as I've said and others have said here, I guess, I don't, Colby, I don't know if you touched on it last week or not, but you know, the resurrection is, is such an important thing in doctrine to, the, to our faith. I mean, without it, Paul says, uh, we're lost. And, and yet it seems to be, and I don't want to sound critical by any means, but it seems to be one of those doctrines that's really just kind of expounded upon and celebrated once a year during Easter. And, uh, and the church meets on Sundays because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, so every Sunday is a reminder of Jesus' resurrection. So a very, very important thing. So Peter, man, he bangs home kind of three of those proofs, the miracles. Hey, man, the crucifixion was God's predetermined plan and the resurrection so important. Now, this morning we will look at Peter's final proofs. He's going to present a couple of more, and then we're going to also look at his sermon application and then we're going to take a look at his listeners' response. Uh, let's go ahead and read our main text together. I'll just read it, and you can follow along in your Bible there. And, uh, and that's going to be Acts 2, 25 to 41. We've got a, a large section to read and, uh, and then to pray and then to study together. It's a big, big text. And uh, if you know me, and many of you do, I don't normally try to tackle uh, text of that size, because my fear is that we'll miss something, but man, the whole sermon of Peter really ought to be taught in one sitting, but that would also be about a four-hour sitting, and then you would be shouting, crucify, yeah, I mean, you just, you would, it would not go well, you'd be like, we get somebody calling a bomb threat, do something, the guy's going really long, he goes long, but this is extremely long, so let's look at 225 to 41, I'll read it, pray, and then we'll begin to uh, expound upon it. And we pick up at, oh, man, I need to get my glasses again. Wow. Okay, 25 is where we begin. It says, for David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, he says this, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And then he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. Uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he goes on to say in 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, or this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's referring to the 120 people that were present Christians there with him, those upper room Christians, and the other apostles. He says, being therefore, in 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, it says, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's talking about the miraculous giftedness of speaking in these foreign languages. And then he says in 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make 
your enemies your footstool. And then he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified, who you've crucified. And he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then it says in our last verse, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, as we begin to take a journey through this amazing text, God, I I pray uh, that you would help for us to pay close attention and to take great notes, God. This is a great moment for Uh, the saints to be built up in the gospel, to be equipped for the ministry of the gospel, to be encouraged, to be transformed, to be changed. And and it's a great moment for those who have yet to know you, God, to hear the gospel and to hear what this text means, and even for them. And uh, help me, God, to glorify you through the teaching and uh, and just to, just to, to do it well for you, God, for your name's sake. Put away with all the distractions, Uh, that we may be faced with this morning, the things of life and the bills and just all the things that we deal with, God. This is a a divinely appointed moment, God, where we can sit in your holy presence and be taught by you. And what a wonderful thing that is. So help us to do that now, Lord Jesus. You are the great teacher. Minister here now. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, guys. You guys ready? If you're ready, say, I'm ready, man. You even added the man part on there. You didn't even have to. Um, Let's begin to look at the text. And and I'd like to sort of kick off by looking at 25, 26, 27, and 28. I'm going to read them again, and then we'll give some exposition on them. 25 says, For David says concerning him, concerning the Lord, he said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then he says this in 28, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Okay, as Peter continues to exhort his crowd and to bang home this point that Jesus is their Messiah and the resurrection proves it. He takes his audience to this great messianic prophecy in Psalm 16, 8 to 11. And that's basically what he's just quoted here. In uh, him, by bringing this text forward to his hearers, and they would have been quite familiar with it, he's working to fortify the resurrection of Jesus as that defining proof that Jesus was God's Messiah or Israel's Messiah or the world's Messiah. Now, David was not referring to himself in this text, but rather to the Lord as he expressed, as the Lord would have expressed in the future, expressed his hope and trust in the Father as he approached 
Calvary. Now, this prophecy was given roughly a thousand years before Christ was even born. And it's really neat because it's like a third-party prophecy. It's like David, like, somehow he's a fly on the wall, and he gets to hear the Lord express his hope uh, to his father as he's approaching Calvary. So David is not literally speaking about himself in this text, but he's like a third-party witness to what Jesus would have been expressing to the father as he approached Calvary. Do you get it? It's really interesting, and, and, I, and I think it's important to, to flush that out because for the Jewish audience, they would have been thinking David was speaking about David, and David would have been speaking about all the battles that he went to and how the father was with him through all the battles and how he was at his right hand, and all, blah, 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 blah. They would have believed that David was referring to himself, and Peter now expounds on this text and gives them the right meaning. And so these were to be thousand years beforehand, these were to be the words of Jesus or the heart and attitude of Jesus. This would have been Jesus saying this. I saw the Lord always before me. He's not referring to himself. He's referring to God the Father. God the Father is with me as I do ministry, as I grew up as a, a tender root and as I began to engage in my ministry. God was there with me. He was always there before me. And it says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Okay, what is, what is Jesus saying? What is this futuristic prophet of what Jesus is saying? Is that, man, the Father is with me. The Father is present. The Father is there. He's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. I'll continue to do my ministry. I'll proceed towards the cross. And then he says, therefore, my heart was glad. Hey, the Father was with me. He was, he's, he's going to be present with me as I engage in this ministry and approach Calvary, which is a terrible thing, if you think, from a humanistic standpoint. Crucifixion was a horrible thing. It was a terrible thing. It was the worst form of capital punishment and, and uh, the, you know, the death row, the death sentence that you could get in that day. And so what does he say here? Because God is with me. The Father is with the Son. He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. The presence of the Father brings him hope. And he'll rejoice over the cross and these things. And it says... Jesus would have said this, or he was going to say this in his heart, or maybe even verbally, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is phenomenal, because Jesus didn't see the corruption of decomposure. He didn't remain in the tomb long enough to rot. He was resurrected. He didn't see the corruption of the flesh that we see when we die. He was resurrected, and so that's what he's referring to here. Man, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your Holy One, who Jesus, would David call himself the Holy One? There's some weirdos out there today that think that they're like that. Have you ever heard of that De Jesus guy down in South America? He actually thinks and believes that he's the second coming of Christ, and he has millions of South Americans following him, and he says that he's the Holy One. David wasn't calling himself the Holy One here. This is Jesus speaking. The Holy One shall not see corruption. And he says, yes, he says this also, Jesus would have said this in the future, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful prophecy that David gave about the heart and attitude of Jesus towards the Father as he was marching towards Calvary, as he was marching towards the unthinkable, the cross, that bloody sacrifice that was done there. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. Now, 
Peter then begins to defend the prophetic claims of Psalm 16, 8 to 11 in verses 29 to 31 of our text. He, he knows that his audience is listening and they're going, oh, David's talking about himself here. He's not talking about this Jesus guy. There's no way. And so he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're harboring. He knows they're filled with malice. He knows they murdered Jesus. He knows that these things are spinning in their minds. And so he begins to defend the prophetic claims of that great psalm. He basically says in 29 to 31 that David was not referring to himself. Look what he says. 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. What did he just say? David couldn't have been speaking about himself because his body saw corruption, because he remained in a tomb and decomposed just like everyone else does. David was not resurrected. He was never resurrected. He's in a tomb. In fact, he says, not only is he in a tomb, he's one over there on J Street. We can go over there and look at it. It's got that shrine on it and all those flowers and all the potpourri. You remember, we march by it every year and go, we love David, you know. I mean, he, he's reminding, hey, this is not David referring to himself. There's no way, man. David couldn't have been. He says in 30, he says what David actually was. He says, being therefore a prophet. Oh, David was prophesying about the future Christ. He wasn't prophesying about himself or talking about his battles or talking about his joy or hope in the Lord as he went off to battle or whatever it is he did. No, 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 no. He's talking about Jesus. Being therefore a prophet, he was a prophet talking about Jesus and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Verse 31, he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Paraphrased, David's statement would have sounded like this, or would sound something like this. Brothers, in case you're wondering, and I know you are, because I know who you are, I'm, I'm one of you. I didn't get it for a while, because Peter definitely had issues at times, but now he's like, yeah. Brothers, in case you're wondering, David wasn't speaking about himself in this psalm, because he experienced the corruption of decay and decomposure, because his body is in a nearby tomb. Therefore, he wasn't referring to himself. Now, in verse 30, um, Peter told them that David was a prophet who knew about the promise of an everlasting throne and who had foreseen how Jesus Christ would escape bodily corruption and abandonment to Hades through the resurrection. He's flushing all these things out for them. Now, just in case you're wondering what Hades means, because when I got to that, I was like, Hades? Is that hell? Is that what that means? What is he talking about here? I mean, if even David was speaking about himself, he would not have been abandoned in hell. He was a man after God's own heart, was he not? And if you're speaking about Jesus, there's no way that he could be referring to Jesus as being abandoned to hell, right? So what exactly is Hades. Well, if you, if you study the word Hades in the New Testament, you'll see that it usually means one of three things. Number one, it is most commonly used to describe death and death's power. The power of death is what it's used to describe when we look in the scriptures and see that. Death and its power over people. Hades is a reference to that. And number two, it is also used as a reference for the place of the dead. They had this concept of this place of the dead, and, and uh, I suspect that some of it may have been more formed from Greek mythology, and, and there is actually a, a place called uh, the place of the dead in Greek mythology, and it's actually called the underworld. 
So every time you see these movies, you know, the underworld, that's where they're getting that from. You got the vampires and all that dumb stuff. You know, the underworld, that's what the Greeks would have called it. And then also Hades um, is used to describe a place where the wicked dead, those outside of Christ, the unrepentant, the unsaved, where they are tormented before the final judgment. So Hades is never a reference to hell. It's a place where people are put temporarily until they experience final judgment, those who are outside of Christ, it's that. And then it's those other couple of things there. So it's very interesting. Now, in our text and in Psalm 16, 8 to 11, because that's essentially what Peter is, is uh, referencing and expounding upon and bringing out, it means the place of the dead. Now, Peter's big point, here's his big point, and this is why you don't spend too much time on Hades, because it's not the big point. And I could do that very easily, because I sometimes miss the point. But Peter's big point, my wife said yes over there. She's like, he does miss the point. Peter's, all the time, Peter's big point is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was not subjected to any form of Hades, no matter what your view is. He wasn't subjected to any of that. He wasn't subjected to bodily decomposure because he was resurrected. And that is what David meant by that particular psalm. That psalm is all about the resurrection, that the Messiah escaped corruption and escaped Hades if he would ever have to go to that place and if such a place existed. He didn't experience any of that because he was resurrected. Awesomeness. Now let's continue in 32 to 33. I need water. I get, when I preach, I get Sahara mouth. It just dries up. <laughs> any of you big talkers? All the girls are like, no, come on, ladies. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> that was a phone call, by the way. Um, I get dry mouth real bad. All right, what are we doing? We're looking at 32 to 33. Let's continue. Let's continue. This is good stuff. He says, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All right. Peter said it was God who raised Jesus up. Now, this particular phrase that Peter uses here is not only about the resurrection. It is about the resurrection that he was raised up. But it's also about the exaltation of Jesus. Okay? Uh, weeks ago, we studied the ascension of Jesus when he was caught up in the clouds as his apostles watched him. You know, I don't know what it looked like. I don't think it looked like ballet. Sorry, we got some ballerinas here, but it just, he went up into the clouds, the ascension of Jesus. He was exalted up to the right hand of God. And so this particular statement, it was God who raised him up, has to do with, yes, God raised him in resurrection. He raised him from the grave, but it also means that he raised him up via the ascension to his own right hand. And then at the end of 33, he said that, through the resurrection and exaltation, and I'll take it further, through the ministry of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the perfect obedience to the law, and then through the ascension of, uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus, and through uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and through the ascension of Jesus, um, Jesus received, because of all that, because he accomplished his mission fully, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
which was now, which was now at this moment at Pentecost, they were seeing this outpouring, which was the promise that the Father made to Jesus, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see that. What, what happened, man? Tongues of fire came down, and they rested over these people that were in this upper room, chilling up there. They were just kind of laying around, and these tongues of fire appeared, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in German and French and all these different weird languages. Those aren't weird. They just started speaking in these languages, in case you're French or German, because I'm French. Don't mess with me. Okay, keep going. Um, yeah, so that's what we saw. We read about that. We studied that weeks ago, right? That was pretty awesome. And so that was the promise that was made. And Jesus, through his perfect obedience and through his ascension and through his exaltation, was given that promise and began to pour out that promise upon people. And it began with 120 souls that were in that upper room. Pretty amazing. Now, and these people were seeing these things happening. They were blown away. I mean, just the average folks that were there, and they were at this, at the, at this, this festival, and there were thousands of them, and they were bearing witness to these gifts, and they were hearing the gospel communicated by people that weren't from their lands in their native tongues. And it was this bizarre, miraculous thing, and they were bewildered, and they were wondering. And he's saying, man, he's tying it all together here. He's bringing it together. Pour it out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing is what he says. Now, in the scriptures, there exists what is known as the Messianic Age. It's the doctrine of the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age is the period of, the period of time uh, when the Messiah would begin uh, his rule and reign in the heavens and on earth and maintain that and hold that. The Messianic Age began when Jesus began to rule and reign. Now, according to Joel 2, 28 to 29, and we looked at that weeks ago, that age would start, it would begin with a special outpouring of God's Spirit. During that outpouring, the remnant of Israel, and some of you are familiar with remnant theology, the remnant of Israel, which was at that moment 120 upper room Christians, that's it, that was the remnant, okay? During that outpouring, the remnant of Israel, the 120 upper room Christians, would miraculously proclaim the wondrous gospel of God to people from all over the world in their native languages. Peter tells his listeners through this section that we just read, he tells them that this is what was happening before their very eyes. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they were witnessing through these tongues and these things at Pentecost was the inauguration or the beginning of the messianic age. It's really fascinating. So what Peter's doing is he's taking it full circle. Yeah, Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus was resurrected. And guess what? The fruit of that is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that these guys had prophesied about many, many centuries beforehand. You guys are witnessing it. There weren't people there that, that could not. I don't believe they're speaking French, even though we, we right? There weren't people there that were rejecting the fact that something amazing was happening. And he's saying, here's why it's happening. Because it was promised through Joel that when the Messiah got to that critical point, he would release the Spirit and it would come and it'd rock your socks. It'd blow your minds. The Messianic age would begin. Peter's bringing it all full circle here. Now, he also, in 34 and 35, quotes another Davidic psalm. Okay? He quotes another Davidic psalm. Let's look at it, 34 and 35. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. Okay, apparently, 
what Peter's wrestling with here is, well, I guess I, he, I shouldn't say he's wrestling with it. He still suspects that these people are hung up and not convinced that these prophecies were about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what's he doing? He's now bringing forth another, another truth, another prophetic truth that, that supports that. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right here, Peter quotes Psalm 110. This particular psalm describes the ascension and exaltation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which prophetically fortifies his statement in verse 33 about Jesus being exalted to God's right hand. You know, this is what's so amazing about Peter and what makes him such a great preacher. He doesn't speak on his own behalf. He'll make a statement and then he'll go back and find the scripture that he learned that from that prophetic scripture or just some scripture, that is really the defining mark of a good preacher. And when I say that, I don't have myself in mind, okay? I don't. I, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own heart. Phil, you know, no. It, it's so important that I think we get this and know this, that, that, that God's preacher is going to use the word of God to support what he says. In fact, He'll expound upon it and just leave his own words out and let the text speak for itself at times. I say this because Peter was a phenomenal preacher because he always went back to the Word of God and he always threaded the Old Testament Scripture with what was happening then. I mean, he was always building a bridge to the Old Testament. He was always building a bridge to the Scripture. His goal as a preacher was to expound on the Scripture. Why? Because he knew the Scripture. That's where the power was. Hebrews 4.12. He knew that the power was in God's word. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, no duh, that's a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer because just the other day, I was listening to the radio, and I listened to a very well-known preacher, not from this area, and when you listen to 99.9 .9 or whatever, those radio programs are only about a half hour long. They're only about a half hour long, right? And I love them, and I like this guy. I've listened to the sermon by this one particular guy, and he's a good preacher, but... I was taking my kids to school, and I was listening very closely, and, and they don't talk because they're too cool for dad, so they just sit back there and, life is terrible, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, can't wait for you guys to get dropped off in three minutes. Yeah, right, party. No. So I'm listening, and I'm listening, and, and, and it was a pretty good sermon. I mean, I was listening, but I realized something about 28 minutes into it. Not once did he read scripture. Not once did he paraphrase scripture. Not once did he quote scripture. That's not to say that he didn't at some point in his sermon, but for 30-something minutes of it, and it was the beginning of it, it never happened. And, and I didn't get angry at him. I didn't get frustrated with him. What I did was I warned myself, Phil, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. You're not supposed to sit up here or stand up here and tell a bunch of people what you think or how you feel or what you think is right and good. No, your job is to read Scripture and explain what it means to the best that you can. That's what you're supposed to do. You're called to teach the Word of God. And that's the primary calling of a pastor, for crying out loud. That's what a preacher is supposed to do. That's not to say that that guy's talk wasn't good, because it was. You could tell he had biblical wisdom and stuff. You could tell he had principles and stuff that were in there. But it, to me, I just thought it, would, it was weird for a preacher to not 
read the text and maybe to explain what it means or to at least make some points and then take scripture and support it. They're just bizarre. And, you know, it, I don't know. I did, I did something dumb. I posted on Facebook and said, I just experienced this and, hmm, and that's all I said. And, and people were like, hey, that's not right. We got to make sure that we do the right thing. I'm like, exactly. But there were other people saying, what's wrong with that? What the heck's your problem? It, it's not okay for him just to talk about that. that. And I'm like, uh, apparently for you it is, but not for me. Anyways, big point, Peter was a great preacher because he was always going back to the word of God. And that's what he's doing by threading these psalms and these prophetic psalms into the messiahship of Jesus, into the miraculous events and things that were happening out there. Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Now, let's take a look at 36. In this particular verse, he's going to point out, well, back, backtrack a little bit. His point in the last section was David did not ascend into the heavens and sit down at the right hand of the Father to have a conversation about his enemies. That's his big point. Now, in 36, he's going to tell them who did actually do that. Is his point in 36. David wasn't referring to himself again. He did not ascend up into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, and God did not make a promise to him that he'd give him the Philistines and all the other Steens and the Ites and all, you know, all the guys down there that he was battling with, the Goliaths and all that. No, in 36, he's going to point him to who David was speaking about. He says, let all the house of Israel, all right, all you guys out there, there were thousands, no microphone, but somehow a lot of them could hear him. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And he says, who? This Jesus whom you crucified. David wasn't speaking about himself, it's Jesus. It was Jesus, the one whom you crucified and killed, that ascended to the right hand of God, and who will have his enemies made into a footstool, and who God has made both Lord and Christ. That's his point. David was speaking about Jesus. Now Peter knew that the most effective way to reach his audience was by taking them through their own scriptures, these psalms were a part of the Torah, and his listeners would have been very familiar with it. We learned weeks ago that these men that were present there at this festival were devout. They were devoted. They knew the scriptures. They were religious men. They were devout men from all over the world. And Peter just hammers them with prophecy after prophecy and fulfillment after fulfillment. And he points all of it to Jesus is what he does. And why is that? Just to prove a point to his audience? No, because all of Scripture points to Jesus. That's the point. It all comes to Jesus. That's precisely what he's doing. Now, before we move to 37, let's quickly go back through the proofs that Peter gave in his sermon to prove that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. Proof number one, the miracles of Jesus, verse 22. Proof number two, the crucifixion of Jesus as God's predetermined plan, verse 23. This is a brilliant sermon, not mine, his. <laughs> Draw a distinction there. I mean, look at, it's just, look at these points, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
truth, sorry, that was weird. Proof number three, the resurrection of Jesus, verse 24. These are Peter's points. Brilliant. Proof number four, this is a new one we learned today, the ascension and exaltation of Jesus, verse 33. We just looked at that. And proof number five, the divinely appointed lordship and messiahship of Jesus. And that was in 36. We just looked at that. Now, how did the crowd respond after Peter unfolded these five proofs? And he also laid the responsibility of Jesus' crucifixion and death on them, did he not? That's exactly what he said. He said at the end of 36, God made him both Lord and Christ, and then he reminds them, this Jesus whom you crucified. He gives them the points and then points the ultimate responsibility of Jesus' rejection and murder on them. How did they respond? Look at 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they were all standing together, brothers, what shall we do? Very emphatic. What are we going to do? Cut to the heart means to be stabbed or pricked with conviction, the deepest part of who you are. The guilt of murdering their own Messiah was so heavy and condemning that they were cut to the core. They were cut to the heart, right through the heart. That Hebrews 4.12, the word of God cuts right through the marrow. It goes right to where it needs to go to do its work. They were cut deeply, so deeply that they cried out to be rescued from their sin and blood guilt in 37. What did they do? They said, brothers, what? shall we do? It's emphatic in the Greek. They're pleading. What do we do? Do you, do you realize what we've done, Jim? Yeah. What do we do? They're, they're, they're begging. What do we do? Verse 37 is a great testimony to the power of God's word. Peter used the word of God as a sword, and it just cut right through many of these folks. It just it just hammered them and convicted them. Now, this question that they asked wasn't rhetorical. What do we do? Okay, let's go get a Slurpee. We don't care about an answer. It wasn't rhetorical. They desperately wanted an answer. And look at Peter's response in verse 38. And Peter said to them, be saved by becoming a legalist. That's what he said, right? That's what I see. Become a legalist. Just, just spend the rest of your life obeying all the laws and earning your own righteousness. And you know what? When you get to the end of your life, God is going to be pleased. He's going to be merciful because you were really good at obedience and obeying all those laws. Yada, yada, yada. Just do that. Remain in that cycle the rest of your life. Just earning, earning, earning. Pharisees got it. Be like them. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said... Be saved by becoming a moralist, didn't he? Become a moralist, a do-gooder, someone who avoids the bad things and, and upholds morality and, and, and does all the good things all the time. And, and, then, and then hopefully when they get to the end of their life, and this is exactly what Islam teaches, you know, the good, there'll be a scale brought out. God's got a big scale apparently in heaven. I haven't read about it yet in Scripture, but apparently he's got one. And then you just stack, okay, 
Bill, I gotta come up with a name, hopefully nobody in here's named that, and if it is, I don't mean you. Okay, let's see, Bill's good stuff on this side, Bill's bad stuff on this side, Bill's moral stuff on this side, Bill's, Im Bill's immoral stuff on this side, let's see. Ooh, hallelujah, the good outweighs the bad. Come on in. Is that what he says? No, no, that's not what he says at all. He actually says, be saved by becoming a ritualist. That's what he says, right? Become religious. Spend your whole life toiling in some church or some religious system, going doing all the stuff, doing all the ritual, walk back forth, be an altar boy, carry a candle, take communion, get baptized, do all the religious things. Be a religious person. That's what he says, right? And you'll be saved. No, that's, that's not what it, he said at all. He, he actually said, be saved by bowing your heads and praying this prayer. And for some of you, you're like, what's wrong with that? Yeah, that's what he said, right? Bow your heads and repeat after me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and save me and help me follow you the rest of my life. Amen. All right, let's go to the club. Is that what he said? Pray this prayer? Didn't mention a prayer, does he? Does that mean that the prayer is wrong? Not necessarily. How tragic is it for someone to hear the gospel and their only response is to pray a prayer and then just go about their business? Do you know how many millions of Christians there are in our nation that have done that very thing and have not changed? Is that what he said? You want to know how to be rescued? You're full of sin. You're full of blood guilt. Pray this prayer and everything will be okay. It's not at all what he says, is it? No. Look at the rest of 38. He says, repent. Repent is what he says. Repent. That's not all he says. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent is metanoeo. In Greek, it's, it's a really rich New Testament term. It, it speaks of a, a change of purpose, of, of turning from sin to God, as illustrated in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Repentance is an essential component of genuine conversion. Both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ called for repentance during their preaching. Turn in another direction. Turn from the sin. And follow God. Now, this had to be a mind-blowing thing for Peter's hearers. There's no doubt that Peter's hearers feared God's judgment for their actions. There's no doubt. And many of them probably responded based on that and that alone. But repentance requires more than fear, a fear of consequences. It goes way beyond that. I, I think I put it in your, in your notes today, but the great commentator, Albert Barnes, he's written great commentaries on the scriptures. He, he said this about repentance. He said, false repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. You hear me? Big difference. 
True repentance hates sin for what it is, an affront to God. Knowing that sin is evil and that God hates it motivates the truly repentant person to forsake it. Genuine repentance thus forsakes sin and turns in total commitment to Jesus Christ. It's really tough for us to to grasp the full magnitude of what was happening with Peter's Jewish hearers at this point. I mean, these people had a rich cultural background. They had a rich history of religion. They were extremely nationalistic, even to the point of executing Jesus because they saw him as a threat in so many ways to their nationalism. And now Peter was calling them to turn their backs on all of it to embrace Jesus, the one they murdered, as their Messiah. Peter's demand to his hearers is the very demand of the biblical gospel. Christ himself said so repeatedly. One instance, Luke 14, 33, he said, So therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? What is Peter basically saying? To be the disciple, one must be truly repentant, which, which means that you must be willing to forsake all for Christ. Anything and everything that gets in the way of believing and trusting and following him. That's what repentance means. With a rich young ruler, what was his problem? His wealth. He would not. Yes, he wanted to follow Jesus to some degree, but he would not forsake his wealth, which was his very idolatrous sin. He was not willing to let it go. What was Judas's problem? Judas's problem, he was very, and we're talking about Judas Iscariot here, he was very nationalistic. He wanted Jesus to assume the throne and conquer the enemies and put him right over to his right hand and give him a crown and you know, have him be some governor of some province or something. I don't know what it was. He did not want to repent of his sin, and he clung to his sin of status and wealth, whatever it was. Whatever it was that he wanted. He wanted his country to be exalted. He didn't care about Jesus. False repentance dreads the consequences of sin, which means you might get a little heartbroken over what you do. But true repentance means not only do you do that, but you really hate sin because of what it does to God, what it does to you, what it does to your family, what it does to everyone else. You hate it. You hate sin. You hate it. And it takes that level of repentance, that form of repentance, to be the true follower of Jesus Christ. Christ hated sin. We must hate sin. We must hate it. We must develop a distaste for it, a dislike for it. Ultimately, because it, God hates it. And if we love God, then we must love what he loves. And if he hates sin, then we must hate what he hates. Amen. Now, this is brilliant what Peter does because he's about to turn up the burner. What's boiling 220? We're at 180. Let's turn the heat up a little bit on what I'm saying here. Peter mentions baptism. And this has been so misunderstood by so many. By calling them to be baptized, 
what Peter was doing was he was not allowing for any secret disciples. That's what the context allows, that and that alone. Baptism would mark a public break with Judaism and identification with Jesus Christ. Baptism would weed out false converts. Peter didn't make the gospel easy for his listeners. He wasn't seeker-sensitive. He knew that the gospel wasn't easy. For crying out loud, he followed Jesus and listened to it for three and a half years, and it was real hard for him. Sometimes he got called the devil because of some of the things that he did and said. He was just a knucklehead, just like me. He didn't have cool hair, though. <laughs> right? I mean, he was just... He, he got it. He, he, he walked with... How could you not walk with Jesus for three and a half years and listen to all he teaches and find out that the gospel is pretty difficult? No, 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 no. no. He knew that the gospel wasn't easy. He understood that it was a road marked with suffering, sacrifice, rejection, Struggle, persecution, spiritual war, and death to self. That's exactly what the gospel is. And yet so much of the church today really misses this, doesn't it? It's as if the church is working feverishly to make the gospel an easy road, a comfortable road, a more palatable dessert. The only way that the gospel is going to be easy is if Jesus is reduced down to a mere addition to a person's life rather than being cast as their very life. And what you have in the church today are probably in the millions that have added Jesus through a prayer to their life. He's just an addition. If you have an iPhone, Jesus is an app. The Jesus app. Don't ever hardly open it or use it, but it's there, and since it's there, I know I'm good. Because I prayed a prayer, or I'm religious, or I'm this or that. Now, the biblical gospel calls for an all-out forsaking of sin and everything else that gets in the way of embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter knew this, and that's why he upped the ante by challenging his hearers to publicly display their change of heart, their repentance through baptism. If you're truly repentant, you will be baptized and show everyone around your new heart. That's what he's saying. The forgiveness of sin in that text has nothing to do with baptism and everything to do with repentance and faith. The context will not allow for any other interpretation. Remember, Peter's point was for his hearers to repent and show that they were truly repentant by being baptized, which symbolized that they had renounced their old religion, renounced their sinful ways to embrace Jesus, and to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's so incredibly important that we understand and remember what the forgiveness of sins and how it comes about and what it means and what that process is that God brings someone through. It's so important that we remember that forgiveness of sin is the result of regeneration, repentance, and faith, not baptism or anything else. We've got to remember that because if we fail to remember that, if we fail to understand that forgiveness of sin is the fruit of regeneration, repentance, and faith, if we fail to understand that, then... It's very easy for us to slip into a mode of earning our righteousness. 
through obedience and, and works rather than simply receiving it from Jesus Christ. So many in the church today believe that in order to be saved, you must repent, yeah, and you must be baptized. There's lots. Now, baptism is a work. It's a deed. Uh, it's absolutely one of two sanctified things that Jesus established for us, which was the Lord's Supper and baptism. I don't want to reduce, reduce it down just to the next thing. It is a very significant and important thing, but it is a response. It's not the very means by which sin is washed away. That's a metaphorical thing. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. That's the point. It's an expression of your faith and your heart change and your true repentance. That's exactly what Peter is teaching here in this text. Generation repentance and faith brings a forgiveness of sin. God's mercy and grace. If we fail to understand that, we'll be stuck in a cycle of earning it that's not the gospel. So many are stuck in that cycle. Peter also mentioned that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Salvation brings with it many things, one of which, and maybe the most important, probably the most important by far, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the permanent marking and indwelling of God's Spirit in the life of the repentant person of faith. Peter promised that his hearers would receive the same spirit that had pretty much blown their minds with these miraculous things that they were experiencing that had taken place just before he began to preach. Joel's prophetic promise of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Joel 2, 28-29, we talked about that a little bit, began with that 129 remnant Christians, that 129 Israelite remnant Christians that were up in that upper room, and now it was about to pour out on many, many more. Peter tells them that if they truly repent, They'll prove it by baptism, and they will receive the Spirit, just as he and the other 119 people had. He goes on to remind them of the vastness of God's promise to pour out his Spirit. In verse 39, he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. For you and for your children is a reference to the nation of Israel. You know, some in certain traditions in the church think that God's just done with Israel. He's got nothing else to do with them. But boy, that text sure seems to indicate that he's got a future plan. He's going to integrate them and, and graft them into his church somehow. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. I don't know what your eschatology is, but God ain't done with Israel, friends. There's too much scripture that says so. This promise is for those Israelites. And notice how he puts them first in his chain of who the promise is for. It's for you and your children. He's speaking to those Jews out there, his listeners. And then he says, those who are far off. Who's he referring to then? Non-Jews. Those who don't submit to the Mosaic law. Those Gentiles that are out there. Us, Americans, whoever. This means that God's promise of salvation and the Spirit is for both Jews and non-Jews, Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. And then he says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What a wonderful statement about God's sovereignty and salvation that is. And I think the context means that Peter was trying to make a point to his Jewish listeners. Their mindset, the Jewish mindset, was that God only wanted to save and bless them. And Peter's saying, eh. It's broader than that, friends. 
God is going to save people from all over the place, from every tongue and tribe, is basically what he's saying. His little statement about God's sovereignty there and how God's branching it out and reaching others, and, and, and those people are who, whoever he chooses to, whether it be Gentile or Jew or whoever. <clears throat> he says this, and this would have been inconceivable for many there. It would have been inconceivable that God would save and pour his spirit into Gentile dogs. That's pretty much how they viewed us. It's pretty much how they viewed Romans, Greeks, all those others, because they weren't a part of that national history and part of that religion and Judaism and all that. This statement alone about God's sovereignty and about how he'll draw who he wants to draw in and save who he wants to save would have turned a lot of people away. That alone. Oh, how dare he say that? There's no way God's just for us Jews. It just says it in our scripture all over the place. There's no way. It was inconceivable that Peter would say something like that, and I'm so glad he did. <laughs> Look at 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Apparently, Peter's sermon was longer than Luke recorded. And that's why he wrote that Peter continued to exhort them. Peter said many other things. He continued to exhort them and bore, he bore witness to them by continuing to exhort them by saying other things. He said other things. He probably used other examples, other scriptures. We don't know. Luke doesn't record for us the full sermon, but Luke certainly records what we need to hear. We really don't need to go any farther beyond what we've already heard about Jesus. But somehow Peter kept talking to them and kept trying to persuade them and kept trying to convince them, as a good evangelist or preacher should. Loved his own people enough to keep speaking to them and keep encouraging them and keep unfolding and unwrapping God's word. The end of 40, he warned them to save themselves from that crooked generation. During his ministry, Jesus referred to that generation as evil, adulterous, wicked, unbelieving, perverted, and sinful. He did that in so many different places. And Peter just uses similar terminology here. He probably heard the Lord preach all those sermons where he, Israel called that nation and those people present there or whatever. He called them those things because that's exactly what they were and that's exactly what we are. Thank God for God's grace. He just uses a similar terminology. Save yourselves from the crooked generation. How? By repenting, trusting in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Boiled down, Peter's exhortation was fairly simple. He told them to follow Christ instead of everyone else, instead of the world. Basically what he said right there in 40. 41. How was God at work during the sermon and through the sermon and after the sermon and, and long before that? And, and just, what was God doing, man? What was going to happen through all this? Look at 41. It says, so those who received his word, that's Peter's sermon, were baptized. Those who received his word, his sermon, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. God was really at work. It says about 3,000 people were added that day. And that's very interesting that they have a number there. Because they actually counted people. They wanted to know what God was doing, and they wanted to know who God had saved, and they wanted to keep track of people so that they could disciple them and invite them into the fellowship and be in their lives. 
They weren't called just to go out and preach the gospel and then leave people to themselves. They're called to make disciples. And so they, they have a number here, 3,000. That's extraordinary. They knew. That's a lot of people to count, right? They must have had a system in place or something. I don't know. Or something. Maybe they just went around and, how many of you repented? And, and they, Maybe they counted them as they were being baptized, I guess. That's how they did it. How long does it take to baptize 3,000 people? I've seen 11 baptized in a church service, and I'm going, this is an eternity. <laughs> and usually there's a good testimony and all that in there, and I don't mean to bash that because I was one of those guys. You know, I, I did it, you know, but, but I've seen 11, and you're, and you're like, how are they going to fit this? <laughs> you know, right? 3,000? I mean, did they have a system? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't think they had any of that stuff in place. But people were coming forward and saying, man, oh, baptize me. I mean, it was a real thing. God was really at work. It was about 3,000 people. They counted. The church exploded. Interestingly, this was a much larger company, one in a single day, than Jesus had secured to his allegiance in two or three years of public ministry. And that was by God's design. That's not to take anything away from Jesus. But Jesus actually told his disciples that as a result of his returning to his father, they would perform greater works than they had ever seen him do. Jesus actually told his disciples, you guys have seen some stuff. And your heads are going, wait till you see what happens when I'm exalted and I'm at the right hand of God and I pour out my spirit. And now they're seeing it. This is mind-blowing. Those 3,000, that was John 14, 12, in case you're wondering about where Jesus said that. The 3,000 converts, Christians, were then formed into a distinct community. The apostolic fellowship is what scholars call it. And it was constituted on the basis that basis of apostolic teaching. Next week, we will begin to take a, a closer look at that fellowship. It's going to be really cool. We'll begin to look at that fellowship and look at the apostles' teaching and continue to kind of expound on those things. Uh, how might we be able to apply this text and sermon to ourselves? I suppose the Holy Spirit has already applied several things. Uh, but I would like to take just a, a few moments to share a few thoughts uh, before we take communion and sing and, and, and go out and make disciples. <clears throat> there could be some here that, and I say this with all sensitivity, but there could be some here that still belong to the world and Satan. You haven't repented of your sin. You haven't placed your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your sin's all over you. You're not in Christ. You love your sin. Did you know that one day you will have to give an account for your sin before a holy, perfect, all-powerful, mighty God? Clearly teaches that in Scripture. And in that courtroom, the hammer of judgment will drop against you and you will be sentenced to the everlasting torments of hell and damnation. 
And the only person to blame for your situation will be you. You're not going to be able to plead a case. You're not going to be able to say it's because of this person. Or this person ruined my life. Or this person did this. Or my mom. Or my dad. There'll be no excuse. The only person to blame will be yourself. The good news is, there's a rescuer. That's what's so wonderful about the gospel. He's the one that Peter has been preaching about in our text. He's Jesus. Friend, if you would be willing to turn from your sin, to repent, to place your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus, be saved and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about. Drop the blank. Everything will change. You don't have to walk out of here the same that you came in. You can kneel before the mercy seat of God and and confess your sins to Him and call upon Jesus to save you. And He will. He doesn't turn anyone away who comes who genuinely comes with a repentant, broken, spiritually bankrupt heart. His arm is not too short to save. His ears are ever open to the cries of those who desire mercy and grace. Don't leave here without making Jesus your Lord, without repenting, turning, and crying out to Him. There could be some here that have a divided heart. You, you love Jesus, and yet you have to, you haven't yet really developed a hatred of sin, and so you don't mind engaging in it. You're a, a fence rider. You got Christ on one side of the fence, and you have the world on the other, and you're right in the middle, and, and you like to dabble in both yards. Well, sin bugs you at times, I suppose, but it's not an offense to you. And so therefore, you just engage in in lots of different forms of it. And, and, And it doesn't seem to bother you, and yet you say you love Jesus. Let me let me ask you this, if that's you. Whatever gave you the idea that that's okay and pleasing to God? What scripture is there that supports your behavior and attitude and your actions? It does not exist. Friend, if that's you, you too need to kneel before the mercy seat of God and cry out for grace and mercy and for Jesus to restore you and to fill you with power and the Holy Spirit to overcome those sins and those things that are in your life, those bondages, those chains that bind you. 
You need to commit yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus. Cry out to Him to make you a hater of sin and a lover of Him. Because He'll do that. Lastly, there could be some here, and this is probably the majority of us, that have truly repented and hate sin and really are in Jesus Christ, really do love Him, really do believe, but at the same time are just struggling and gutting it out. Ain't that all of us? You know, we, we, we don't love sin, and it brings conviction, and, and we hate it, but somehow we fall into those traps, we make those mistakes, we repeat those things at times, but for the most part, we love Christ, and we hate sin. I think that's the majority of us here today. I, I want you to be encouraged by what the Word of God says at the end of verse 39. We already read it. God is the one who called you. If you combine that with the promise of Philippians 1.6, which says God will bring to completion the good work that He began in you, and then if you combine that with Jesus' promise in Matthew 28.20, where He said, I am with you always to the end of the age, be encouraged, Christian. You're in a battle. You're right where you should be. Gutting it out. Fighting day in and day out. Moment by moment. God is the one who called you. God is the one who will bring this work, this beautiful sanctifying work of making him into the image of his son. His son he'll bring that to completion, friends. And Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you to the end of the age. So may your heart be encouraged today. Fight the good fight. Run the race that's marked out for you. Continue to grow in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We're together, people. None of us are alone. We have a community where we can strengthen and encourage one another. May it be so.